offering them to you. I'm going to burn them for you because this is pleasing to you because I know that you are the true provider and that you are the true sustainer. And this is why money is an important conversation for us to have about in the realm of worship today because money for us is what the goat and the grains and the birds and the cattle were for Israel in the Old Testament. These are the things that represent our livelihood. These are the things that sustain us. This is our food. This is our shelter. It's our education. It's our, our fun. Um, and, and in worship, as we gather on Sunday mornings, we bring our tithes and offerings to God, and we offer them in saying, God, this represents me. This represents all that I have, all that keeps me alive, and I offer this to you, recognizing that you are truly that which sustains me and that which keeps me alive. Um, and so when we give an offering in the worship service, you know, we, have, we don't make a big deal of it. We don't pass the plate around. We have this wooden box at the back that doesn't have any flashing lights or, or it's not a money bag. I mean, you might not know what it is if you haven't put money into it before. But as we gather together and we give our tithes and offerings in worship, our worship becomes very material. Because when we come to worship, we're not just spirit, right? We are physical, tangible beings. And in the same way that when we worship, we are reminded that God was not just spirit, but God took on flesh and became a very physical, tangible human being for us. And so we can look at numbers and say, well, we're behind in our budget, and, and that's not a good thing, and could you, you know, consider giving more? But we could also look at this and say that we are missing an opportunity to make our worship very tangible, um, that we are missing a potential opportunity to say yes to Jesus when he says, I want all of you. Not all of you like persons, but I want every single bit of you. And I can't say what this looks like for each of us. Um, we're called to give faithfully to our local church, and this is between you and God. This is your worship to God. This is not between you and me or you and Andrew Hoffman. Um, we don't know who gives what in this church. That's how we do our finances. It's um, just the treasurer um, knows these things. But, but in the same way, we are called to be faithful in giving. But the church has a responsibility to be faithful in how we use these resources. Um, because as you make this offering to us, we are also offering ourselves as a church to say, okay, what are you calling us to? Being faithful to the preaching of the gospel, being faithful to our mission in the Bay Area, being faithful to, to saving people in their lives here and now and in the life to come. And, and these are big tasks. And so I just ask you to think about that and to pray about that um, as you consider what do you bring to worship? Um, what are you bringing to offer? And, and so turning the page a little bit, um, turning to the sermon, so you can relax. I'm, I'm done speaking about money. Um, and a part of our faithfulness as a church is, is looking at Jesus a lot, right? Because Jesus is the reason that we gather. And this is why we've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, years, actually. I was talking to my housemate, and he said, well, you know, when I came to Solano years ago, we were starting the Total Transformation series. And we've taken breaks here and there, but we find it very important to look at the life of Jesus. But in our text today, we we see that it's important to not only know what Jesus is for, but also what Jesus is against. Um, so would you pray with me before we begin today? God, our Father, 
Jesus, the perfect Son, and the Holy Spirit, we, we come to you in, in um, awe of this church that you are building, and that you have continued to grow this church from uh, a handful of people meeting in a living room to, to what it is today. And we understand that regardless of what happens with finances, regardless of what happens with our, our discipleship and our, and our ministry, that we want to be faithful in these things. But regardless of this, you will build your church and you will accomplish your purposes. Um, I just pray that, that you will use us, that we can, be, we can be on that train as it goes forward. Um, that you would allow us to participate in the great things that you are doing all around us, and that we would celebrate the things that you've done. And that's why we gather. We celebrate what you've done on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ, dying for us. And that's why we gather and and help us just to keep focus on you, on the big things. I would pray that your spirit would open our eyes and open our minds and, and set aside distractions that we would hear what you have for each of us today. We pray all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, there's some Bibles that we can pass out. If, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one. Um, and if you've been here the last few weeks, you've been watching this back and forth dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they keep asking him all these questions. And as Andrew Hoffman has been showing us week in and week out, that no matter what the, the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees, whoever it is, no matter what they throw at Jesus, he has some remarkable response to them, and it just stops them in their tracks. And now it's an interesting week because the tables are turned a little bit. And I like to think of all things in terms of a soccer match, right? The all-important lens of how we view the world. And, and, and soccer matches, often you have, you have one team that's just attacking, 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 and the other team will sometimes just sit back, and they'll absorb the defense. And they're not just sitting back to... to you know, roll over and die and lose the match. They're, they're waiting for the appropriate time to launch that counterattack. When they've thrown everything they can, and then they, they see a moment of now's the time, and they spring that perfect counterattack. And at the end of Luke chapter 20, here's where we find this counterattack. And time and time again, the religious leaders have been going on the offensive against Jesus, and he's dealt with everything they can throw at him, and now he goes on offense. So if you would open to Luke chapter 20, I'm going to read um, our whole text today uh, from verse 41 going to 47, and it's uh, on page 752 in the white Bibles that we've passed out. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And this is God's word. Excuse me. So, as I said, Jesus has been uh, receiving all these questions, and now he's asking the questions. And now everybody's playing on, on his terms. And we're going to see in our text today um, that this interaction shows us uh, two things. And the, the first point is going to be that Jesus is more than you expect. And the second point is that 
Jesus is the greatest possible motivation. So that's going to shape our time today. Jesus is more than you expect, and Jesus is the greatest possible motivation. In verse 41, it says, but he said to them. Them is referring to uh, the scribes and the Sadducees, and we know that just from the context of earlier in chapter 20. And they say, uh, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Uh, Now, some of you may know this, but Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. Um, So, you know, every time we say Jesus Christ, we are affirming that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, And and our text clues us in on a really key expectation for the Messiah. It says that the Messiah was going to be David's son. You know, in other words, he was going to be a descendant of David or from the lineage of David. You know, David being the king from the Old Testament, you know, the greatest king of Israel, who's often looked at as, as the ultimate example of good kings. And the implication of that is important because what that says is that Israel, in their expectations of, of the Messiah, they were waiting for a royal Messiah, you know, a king. They were waiting for somebody who was going to act like a king and do the things that a king does, like come with an army and conquer enemies and defeat political opponents, you know, like Rome maybe in this context. And the Messiah was going to make everything right politically, economically, socially. And now watch how Jesus stumps his audience here. It says in verse 42, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And if you look at maybe your book, your Bible has uh, some notes in the margins, and it might say something about this being a quotation from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is actually the most often quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. And it's understood as a messianic psalm, uh, which simply means that it was a text that was looking forward into the future, you know, foretelling some aspect of what the Messiah was going to be like. And it's really a fascinating psalm. Um, It's one of my personal favorites, and it's something that if you haven't, you should look at it and read it, and, you know, that we had... uh, a series on the book of Psalms, I think two summers ago, and one of them, one of the sermons was on Psalm 110, so it might be worth you going back and take a look at that. But in a nutshell, um, Psalm 110 was about this. It was speaking of this coming Messiah who was eternal, and one who was from the order of Melchizedek. Thank you so much. I'm just going to I blame that on Miguel for making me sing really loud. <clears throat> I was, sorry, I didn't really plan ahead in that part. I mean, it talks about the, the Messiah who is somebody who is eternal, who is from the order of Melchizedek. Um, and I'm actually a little disappointed with all these boys that we've had born in this church lately. We didn't get one Melchizedek. I mean, I, I could have swore there would have been one Melchizedek, but that's okay. But Melchizedek was a significant figure because he was both a priest and a king. And those were were, uh, roles that don't overlap. They were for specifically different people. And so for Melchizedek to be both priest and king, we are told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was from the order of Melchizedek, being both priest and king. So Jesus being the Messiah, the one who is like the priest who intercedes for the people, but he's also like the king who rules the people. So that's Psalm 110 in a nutshell. But the reason Jesus is bringing up this psalm here is because he's wanting to show the people that, that the, there's something about the Messiah that you're going to miss. 
And it's like Jesus is saying to them, okay, you say the Messiah is the son of David, right? Which is something we could all agree on. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody nodding heads. So why does David refer to him as Lord? You know, if he's the son, how can he also be the Lord? And you, you might not be sitting here in our context thinking, oh, he got him good with that one. Because there's, a, there's some context here that we might miss, but um, basically there's this very clear lines drawn between father and son. That no son was ever greater than his father, no matter his accomplishments or his power or prestige. By default, the son is less than the father, always. And so to, to say that the Messiah was going to be the son of David, but then yet David calls him his Lord, well, what's going on here? And so we think, well, is Jesus saying that the Messiah was not going to be the son of David? Well, we know that can't be the case because all throughout the Gospel of Luke, especially uh, if you look at the birth narratives in the first few chapters of Luke, um, and even just a couple of chapters ago in Luke 18, we, we find that Luke is very clear on referring to Jesus as the son of David. In Luke 18, when you have the blind beggar who says, and you know, son of David, have mercy on me. And he calls this out to Jesus twice, and Jesus doesn't bother to correct him. So when Jesus is telling the, the scribes and the Sadducees that the Messiah is not less than the son of David, he's telling them he's more. He is the son of David, but he's the son of God. And the scribes and Sadducees, were, they were going to miss that Jesus was the Messiah because their expectations were too small. They were too narrow for him. I mean, it's like the horse before the race as it's got the blinders on, right? This is them when it, when it came to the Messiah. They wanted the king. They wanted the warrior. They wanted the man riding in on the war horse. But instead, he rode in on a donkey and who was mocked and beaten and was killed on a cross. In the psalm here, it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the religious leaders of that time would have wanted their enemies defeated. They would have wanted them dead in battlefields, and God was, the Messiah was going to defeat the enemies. But what does, this, what does God do when he sends his son? Well, Jesus defeats the enemies of the entire human race. He conquers the enemies of sin and death once for all. By dying on a cross. I mean, he surpasses every expectation they could have had for him. And they were going to miss it because they were looking in too narrow of a way. And the point I want to make about that is this, that Jesus cannot fit into any of our narrow expectations for him. He cannot fit in any box we make for him. He will not be held by any constraint we try to place on him, and he's going to surpass every category that we try to imagine for him. You know, everybody wanted something different from Jesus. I mean, we've seen this for the last you know, 20 chapters of Luke. The, the Sadducees wanted one thing. The Pharisees wanted another. The crowds wanted something different. And we do this all the time, don't we? In the uh, Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, first chapter, uh, Paul's catching on to this too, and he says, for the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 
Paul's saying that the Jews, they want the miraculous stuff, right? They want the healings. They want the exorcism. They want the experiential stuff. But the Greeks, they want the wisdom. They want the logic. They want the reasons why. They want the arguments. They want to read the reason for God and mere Christianity and the case for Christ. But what does Paul say? Sure, yeah, let me, let me explain Jesus to you for your narrow categories. No, he says. We preach Christ crucified. We tell them about the king on the cross. And this is foolishness to you. But it's bigger than anything you're going to imagine. Jesus is more than you expect. And this is a message for non-Christians and Christians alike. I've seen this a lot in one of my classes this semester is uh, contemporary culture and evangelism. And part of our assignment is to ask non-Christians a lot of questions. And just through email or phone calls and, and then there's online forums. So we're reading some of our classmates and just some of these responses. And a lot of these questions are about what do you think it means to be a Christian? And what do you think of Christianity? And who do you think Jesus was? And, and if, why aren't you a Christian? <clears throat> and over and over you find that people all have different reasons for, for not believing, but they do have something in common. So you have some people on the logical side, like the Greeks. They want the rational answer. They want to know, you know, how do you believe the Bible? Or, or how could a God become a flesh and blood human being or or um, how, does, how does the Bible and evolution work together? On the other side, you, want, you have the people who want the explanation from the gut. They, they have this, these feelings in their, in their emotion. They want to have that part satisfied. They say, well, how could a loving God send other good religious people to hell? Or, or they don't see and experience God. How come we don't have miracles happening anymore? You know, they want the signs. They're like the Jews. But all these people have something in common. And that that is, they are looking for that, that watertight reason, that watertight explanation to believe in God. Whether it's the miracles or the arguments, they want some watertight explanation to believe in Christianity. And as I heard one pastor say recently, the problem is that God does not give us a watertight explanation. You know, apologetics and... and um, you know, a lot of these arguments, they all have their time and place, but, but there's nothing watertight about this. And this pastor said that if you are waiting for that one watertight explanation for everything, you will die waiting. Because what God gives us is a watertight person. And if you were the one who was looking for that watertight explanation, I would invite you to look at the person of Jesus. To look at his life and his death and his resurrection because Jesus is our watertight example. You know, time and time again, you're going to find people that disagree with theology and doctrine and they're going to debate this point and that point. But never have I heard anybody say that I think Jesus was a horrible example, a bad teacher, and he said stupid things all the time. I mean, they might be out there, but I have yet to meet that person. And there's also a message here for those of us who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is that we must not miss the work of God by putting on our blinders. And we have this tendency to, to see Jesus as one-dimensional. And so often the church is divided by this, right? Or you have people who want to know, well, what type of Christian are you? You know, are you political or are you opposed to politics? Are you liberal? Are you conservative? Are you about social justice or are you about evangelism? And looking at the example of Jesus, you have to say, 
Yes. Right? To all of these things. Because Jesus does reason and miracles. He does mind and heart, grace and truth, mercy and justice. He's the son of David and he's the son of God. And we must look at his life and death and resurrection to understand just great how our Messiah really is. And that's our first point, that Jesus is more than you expect. Now, to our second point, that Jesus is the greatest possible motivation. Look with me at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples... I love that little cheeky move that he does here. He's talking to his disciples, but he does it loud enough so everybody can hear it around him. I know you've all done this before. I think in college, I used to do that a lot. I used to sit at the the cafe, and I used to talk about The Economist or Foreign Policy Magazine really loud because I wanted people to hear me, and, oh, he's informed. Yeah, cool. Verse 46, it says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, the scribes were a part of the religious elite. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had scribes. And they were experts on God's law, and they were also tasked with the huge huge job of interpreting Scripture for the people. And it's clear from this text that they enjoyed a good bit of power and prestige. You know, they wore these nice long robes, which were probably like a uniform. And so people would see these robes, and they they would know instantly that they were scribes. Um, And it says that they loved these greetings that they received in the marketplace. Um, Not quite sure what this was. Maybe it was a bow. Maybe it was a little curtsy or something. It's not Downton Abbey, so probably not. Um, But because of their position, we know that they, they received the best seats in the synagogues. And they were invited to all the important parties. And they were given the seats of honor at those parties. And, and Jesus gives us the impression that these were the spiritual leaders of the people. But all they cared about was how others viewed them. They were motivated by popularity and looking good before men. And in verse 47, Jesus calls them hypocritical. He says that the scribes devour widows' houses. It's, uh, scholars you know, offer some suggestions of what this could mean. It's a bit unclear, but the message is clear. That Scripture demands that we care for the widows. And these people are experts on the law. They should know this above and beyond everybody else. But instead, they're destroying the defenseless widows. And worse, Jesus says, they give long-winded prayers to make it look like they got it all figured out. And now, I think there is a clear opportunity here to speak about the, the televangelist type and the megachurch pastor type, um, the, that German bishop of bling that's been in the news lately. Um, and I really believe that this text does have a message for Christian leaders who abuse their power and wealth to exploit others. But I also think that you don't need any encouragement from me um, to point fingers at other Christian leaders, because we don't want to breed a a culture of criticism. We don't want to become Pharisees. And especially anytime you read a text and you think, oh, this is great, man. That would be perfect because it applies to that guy over there. Anytime you start thinking that, it should be a red flag. Look out. Because the more we look at this text, 
we will see that there is a warning for you and for me about what motivates us. And first of all, Jesus is warning the Christian leaders among us, right? Pastoral staff, the leadership team, the church council, the home group leaders. I mean, like it or not, you're called to a higher standard. And do you serve in the church only because you love the public affirmation, the recognition of your peers, that you have some power and authority in the church? And do you serve God because you like to get invited to important meetings? Um, this is definitely a growing temptation for leaders in the church and all over the place. The more we have you know, these conferences and these special luncheons to speak at and opportunities to do this and to do that, there's always this temptation that we are going to be motivated by the wrong thing. And, and I have to confess to you that uh, going over this text, I was preaching to myself because I felt so convicted by this. Because recently, I was thinking about all the stuff that's been going on, um, the city of Albany and all the homeless uh, stuff that's been happening. And <clears throat> for, for years ago, or years ago now, the city has approached the church, and they've approached me because I'm staff, and I just happen to be working with the homeless community, but I've been invited to some of these like behind-closed-doors meetings with very powerful people, and I can only laugh at it now because it's like, it's like Albany, right? I mean, it's, I mean, not that it gets Albany, but it, I mean, I get it. It's a small town, but, but anyway, for me, it was like, oh, wow, like, this is a big deal. Like, I'm sitting around the table with, like, who's who of Albany? <clears throat> And I've lost my focus many times, admittedly, and I, I have not thought about God and his mission for this city, but me, and handing out my business cards, and, and when I walk down the street, I feel cool, and the, you know, the director of city this and that, I'm like, hey, Andrew, I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I was doing this for my popularity and my own ego boost at times, and not serving God and the poor like we're called. And Jesus singles out religious leaders here because they are in positions of power and authority, and they have been tasked to lead God's people in very specific ways. But these are heart issues, right? These are motivation issues that all of us struggle with. I mean, what motivates you to do good things? And what are the reasons behind your service? Is it a great opportunity for Facebook and Instagram to make you look good? Um, why do you come to church? Is it to make your family happy or to make your peers think more of you? And why do you give money? Is it because I just gave you a little five-minute talk on why you should give money and now you feel pressured to do it? My mom used to always say that integrity was doing the right thing when nobody was looking. Of course, being a kid and that being my mom, I thought that was really stupid. But now, I see the wisdom of that. I mean, would you love your neighbor in secret? Would you give to somebody in need, knowing that nobody was ever going to know about it? I mean, would you turn the other cheek if nobody saw it? Or, or if it really just looked like you were getting walked all over? I, I will tell you, that's a really hard one. I mean, turning the other cheek is actually kind of easy when somebody puts their arm around you and says, oh, that was so Christ-like of you, but when nobody sees I don't know if anybody's seen the new uh, Hunger Games movie yet. That went yesterday. Guilty. And there's a great article about that in Christianity Today last week. Um, I don't know if some of you saw it. Look it up. It's, it's worth your read. And the author is pointing out how this movie was a, a very strong criticism of the world that we live in, 
where appearance is everything. In Panem, uh, the capital city, this is the center of power and wealth. And you find that characters there don't really care much about bravery or love or generosity. They really care about the appearance of these things. And the main character, Katniss, is, is told that it doesn't really matter how you feel about the Hunger Games, only that people watching on TV believe you and that they like you and that they support you to help you win. I mean, everybody is watching. There's cameras on these people all the time. Everybody is watching, and that is what motivates people. And we are living in the Hunger Games, right? I mean, our actions are driven by public approval and appearance so often. Now, we all know that there are a lot of non-Christians around us, many people in our lives who live very good lives. And they do a lot of good, right? And this is great, and I believe that God uses all of this for his purposes. But what I do want to say is this. Christians have access to a greater motivation than anybody else in the world. You see, the essence of being a Christian is not living a good life, but why you live a good life. I mean, as Christians, we have a power and a motivation different than anything else. And that motivation is the gospel. The knowledge that Jesus Christ died for you so you don't have to do good to be accepted. You don't have to put on a performance. You can be motivated by joy and gratitude. You can live a life filled with good works because you are grateful for what God has done for you. Because when no one else is watching, when everybody else has gone home, when there's no more invitations or special seats or special greetings in public places, you can still be filled with joy as you do good. As you love your neighbor, as you turn the other cheek. And this is because Jesus is the greatest possible motivation. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, an uh, old uh, Welsh um, pastor, he lived and, and was preaching about 75 years ago or so. And he tells this story of this doctor friend of his who has this little gray dog that he walks him on this leash. Every day before work, he takes this little dog down the same path. And every day the dog is just straining. And he's just straining. And he's just holding him back. And, and one day the doctor, in the middle of his walk, decides to take a risk and to take the dog off the leash to see what happens. And he bends down and he unclips the leash and <laughs> dog is gone. And he's pretty bummed. My dog just left me. He's walking down this path and every now and then he sees this gray thing like and it's you know seeing it here and there. And about 20 minutes later, this little dog comes running back down the path and he's exhausted. And he just stands next to him and he just starts walking next to him. And every day the doctor goes on this walk and never again did he use a leash dog always stay close by his side. Because of God's grace, we have a freedom like never before. And it's a freedom like nothing this world can offer. And strangely, the more we experience this freedom, the more we walk closer to our master, obeying him, following his commandments. Legalism does not motivate us enough. Fear only motivates us in little flashes. You know, public pressure only motivates us while the public is there. 
Only when we have been released from false motives, released from that burden of having to do good, only then are we going to find that inner joy, that inner peace, and that motivation to love God and love neighbor. And because we are compelled by grace. And it's at this point that we look to the communion table too. And we see that Jesus is not only our greatest motivation, but he is also our our greatest example too. Because here at this table we are reminded of a man who had all the power at his disposal, who had all of the, the affirmation and the glory of the world. He had choirs of angels singing his praises. He had all that that this world strives for, and yet he gave it all up, and he took on flesh, and he died for us, and he was raised from the dead so that we can be free, and we can be compelled by our love for him, and not by anything else. So I invite everybody who has seen that he is the son of David, but he's also the son of God, and who believes that, Anybody who understands that this God emptied himself and took on flesh to be both our example and our motivation and also our Savior. Doesn't matter if you are a member of this church. uh, Doesn't matter if this is your first time visiting. If you believe that, you're welcome at this table today. Just ask that you spend some time um, reflecting in your seats before you come forward, um, thinking about ways, maybe confessing to God false motives. Um, it maybe doesn't look like a radical change of behavior, but it really does matter what's in our heart because that's between you and God. And as you're ready, you come down the center. Um, Nicole and I will be holding um, the bread and the juice, and there will be two people and also two stations on the table. Um, so as you're ready, come forward, take the bread, dip it in the juice, and then return um, to your seats down the sides. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, you have given us a freedom from death, a freedom from having to please people, from having to work for other people's approval, from having to earn anything from you. Um, We confess that we, we forget that. I forget that every day. And I try to take things into my own hands, and I do things all the time so that people think that I'm a great person. Um, And I would pray that you would remind us all that we don't have to try to be that great person because you were that great person for us. Remind us of these things as we take the bread and and dip it in the cup, that this would just be another way that our, our worship becomes very material, that we are reminded of how real your sacrifice was for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.